What's up, fam? This is Jay, letting you know that Push Black has a new podcast called State of Criminal Justice. Every week, State of Criminal Justice digs into the most important events happening right now in the legal system. Listen, the future of our community depends on us understanding how injustice systematically operates in this country. State of Criminal Justice is here to ensure you're always up to date on how institutional racism is impacting Black people nationwide. State of Criminal Justice is produced by Push Black. You can catch it on our Push Black YouTube channel, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thanks for the support. Peace. One hundred eighty days, seven hours, one student. On average, our children spend one thousand two hundred and sixty hours in school. In those hours, we entrust teachers to care for our kids, to nurture their mind and identity, to address their needs and safety. We entrust teachers to prepare them for the road ahead and teach some of the lessons necessary to craft a bright future. So what happens to our kids when their teacher fails? What happens when educators instead give our kids a lesson in hating themselves? I'm Jay from Push Black, and you're listening to Black History Year. So for better or worse, teachers play a significant role in the lives of Black children. And it's a terrifying reality that schools are a place where they learn anti-Blackness. The impact is traumatic and lethal, a fact today's guest knows all too well. Dr. Alicia Montgomery is the executive director at the Center for Powerful Public Schools, an organization whose mission is to build the capacity of educators and prepare students for college, career, and most importantly, life. With a commitment to addressing racism in classrooms, Dr. Montgomery understands the hurdles our kids especially face. And she's here today to illuminate how Black students are indoctrinated into anti-Blackness. But first, we'll hear the story of the topsy-turvy doll to understand how, even outside of the classroom, our children have long been taught self-hate. young girl approached the master of the house slowly. As an enslaved child, she had seen this white man's cruelty far too often. The man extended his wrinkled hand, the dark brown hairs on the back thick and long. It reminded the girl of the cattails that grew along the river. Tap it, he said to her. Tap the back of my hand. The young girl was terrified. She didn't want to touch the river cactails, so she didn't move. 
The master snatched her by the front of her dress. He snarled into her petrified face, spitting as he said, tap my hand or I'll rip you to pieces. With tears in her eyes, the little girl gently tapped the back of his hand, being careful not to touch the master too roughly or too long. He turned his hand over and opened it, revealing a beautiful black rag doll. But there was something strange about it. Take it, the master said. Her name's Topsy. The young girl shyly took the toy from his hand. At first glance, Topsy looks like a black rag doll. But when you lift her dress, Instead of legs, there's a white doll's head and arms. Pull down that dress, and now she's a white girl. This was the topsy-turvy doll. There's a lot of mystery surrounding this strange toy. The doll first appeared during slavery. Both enslaved black girls and white girls played with the toy. Even after slavery, the doll was popular. And a few theories exist as to why. One is that they were used to teach black girls how to be subservient to white girls. It also could have been a tool that showed the perceived differences between white and black women. It also showed both black girls and boys their inferiority to white people. But more than anything, the doll is a symbol of white supremacy, reflecting the subordination of black people to their white oppressors. And it's a message that Black children are still receiving today. We're still part of a system that continues to find creative ways to oppress us. A system that indoctrinates Black children into anti-Blackness and self-hate. That messaging is especially pervasive in the place our kids spend thousands of hours within their schools. Dr. Montgomery, could you tell us what Black liberation looks like to you? So Black liberation looks like being free from all of the stressors and the uh, inhibitors to Black success that have been kind of laid upon us through institutional and systemic racism. So how does the work that you do push us towards that vision of liberation? So my work is primarily in schools, supporting educators to create spaces that are reducing and and eradicating implicit bias issues around low expectations and achievement around for Black and Brown kids. And so that work specifically deals with it at the core and where it begins, right? Because our children inevitably experience the impact of racism, not just through like whatever issues are happening in their home and in their community, but also through direct contact with folks in the education system whose implicit bias and issues around race directly impact how children are graded, how children are dealt with behaviorally, the number of suspensions they have, 
all of those issues. And so we, we work with educators to under, for them to understand themselves more, but also uh, how to remove some of the barriers to success that are in place. And could you define implicit bias for us? Yeah, so implicit bias is sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, we have an expectation of how people may react, behave, or learn based on their color, race, ethnicity, culture, what have you. And we all have it. No one is sheltered from that. We all have these preconceived notions about how a situation might go or how someone may respond or react or interact with you based upon their race. I mean, we see it like with our uh, police officers when they're shooting someone because implicitly they're thinking that they're a danger because they're a black male. Those impact that response, which is to kill them, right? The same thing in the classroom is students being suspended or expelled at a much higher rate than their peers. So you mentioned some examples of how implicit bias manifests. Can you describe your organization a little more and in what ways do you all come in and work to change what's going on? Yeah, so uh, Center for Powerful Public Schools has been in existence for about 13 years now. I am the second executive director there. It was started as a means for creating classrooms of quality for our most underrepresented groups of students. And as we began this work, we focus on student-centered equitable practices in the classroom. And over the years, this has really, you know, evolved. We've always looked at equitable practice, calling out, for example, in a classroom, Black boys seated in the back or around the edges. We've always talked about like why that's occurring. We've always talked about infusing culture into instruction and ensuring that students see themselves in the curriculum and see themselves in the environment. Parents feel welcomed on the campus and those kinds of things. We examine practices around ensuring that teachers understand their own implicit bias. So we, you know, help them understand their own bias. Oftentimes it's a workshop, right? You go to a workshop, you learn something, you go back and you keep doing the same stuff you've always done. We work in partnering with implementing change. We also have a curriculum. It's called Roots for Success. It's for students of color specifically. And it is really about them understanding their identity, who they are in relation to the rest of the world, also being positive about who they are and understanding that they are not crazy. If they feel like they've been called out because of their color, it most likely is true. If they feel like they're seeing most of their friends or most people that look like them called in the office, it most likely is true. And how do we help them understand that and relieve some of the stress they have from that? The American Academy of Pediatrics in 2019, this is before George Floyd, they put out a policy statement that says, hey, pediatricians, racism is impacting children in a way that we need to deal with it. We need to create a policy around how we're handling youth. The American Association for Psychology, 2013, years ago, was talking about this and and the impact, the detrimental impact of racism on children. So it's not new. This is not a new concept. And people now at least right now, we need, as we have the attention and we can actually do something about it, or at least we have the ears of policymakers and things like that at this point, 
something needs to be done right right now. Kids are being traumatized every day. They can't wait any longer. And so policy needs to say, if you're an educator and you're not willing to make a change around how you're interacting with these students, you don't need to be a teacher. You don't need to be an educator anymore. It's that detrimental. Thank you for laying that out for us. Are you able to give us some historical context around ways that these type of practices have been just embedded in the, the school system? Let's start at the beginning. You know, there was a time when it was against the law for African-Americans to even learn how to read. And at some point, we had our own schools. And in those schools, we absolutely were trying to create an education system for our own kids. But then even that became, you know, a problem. So as Jim Crow, people tried to kind of even the playing field, right, by having kids bust to different schools. I was one of those kids in the 70s, bust to the other side of town. But what you experience in those environments is low expectations, not a focus on high quality or high level thinking and all of those things. Historically, when it comes to access to quality education, African-Americans have not been able to access the kind of quality education that gives them a fighting chance in the economy today or yesterday. No Child Left Behind was our was this thing about, okay, well, let's disaggregate this data and look at it by race and by ethnicity. And it put a spotlight, right? Uh, for all that it was, was wrong, it did put a spotlight on the disparities of the education of Black and Brown kids. Not that it changed, right? Like, you know, that, it didn't help, it didn't change um, because we're not addressing some of the issues that are paramount to addressing it, which is people's beliefs around whether kids can actually learn. There was a time when we were feeble of mind, thick of tongue, right? That, that belief system around uh, the ability of Black kids has, you know, permeated through. And then we have these educators who are really just saviors, right? Oh, they just need, you know, some love. They need this. No, they need to learn. <laughs> they need to learn at high levels. <laughs> you know, they need love. Yes, but more than love, they need to learn at high levels. So how do we uh, address that? And so the system itself was never built for the success of Black and Brown children. I remember uh, when George W. Bush was doing this tour of No Child Left Behind, he came and spoke at my high school. I guess we're one of the schools he did his tour through. And, you know, as a kid, we had no idea what that meant. I was just clapping, excited to see the president, not knowing any of the implications of anything that was going on. So it was interesting how these things are, you know, often rolled out with flashy names like this, but end up not necessarily having the type of impact that should be had. You know, just thinking of myself and my peers coming up to the public school system and how some of these practices you've mentioned, I think lead to low self-esteem and anti-Blackness amongst Black kids themselves. Have you seen this and um, what are your thoughts on that? Listen, I have to tell you a story. When I was a principal and I was a small kind of a combination, urban, rural, suburban school district. But there were a number of black and brown children in this school district. I was on my way to a principal's meeting. So my boss comes in and she says, you know, 
she called me and she said that there was going to be something going on that might cause a stir. And I trusted her. So I didn't really ask her a lot of questions. And what in, in fact happened is this principal called all the black children into the cafeteria. She proceeded to show them the data and she wanted to enforce upon the children how badly they had performed on the last testing. And she wanted to tell them like, well, this is not like who you are. I know you can do better. And children who were honor students, children who were gifted and talented and scoring high were also in that room. Children left that conversation crying. Children left that conversation devastated. As an educator who feels it's my responsibility to prepare kids for any assessments they're going to take, I was appalled that the weight of the assessment and the performance of the students was put on the students themselves. And these are elementary students. It's not okay. It's absolutely not okay. Black minds matter. So we are expected to care for, not traumatize our children. Mm. These are some of those, you know, reverberating issues that kind of come out of that people really having to deal with how they deal with the underserving of black and brown kids. So for folks listening that may be parents of students that are in the public school system or guardians, what type of actions can they take? to counter what's going on in this school systems? For too long, we have just removed our children from situations. I get it because we want to protect our kids. We take them to charter schools. We take them to private schools. We, we remove them from the system as opposed to pushing and laying on the system to make it change. And so the first thing I want to say is stop doing that. Go to the school board. Go to the supervisors. Right now is the time. Call a light on the practices you see happening to your children. Ask them, what are they doing around the achievement of Black and brown kids? What are they doing to understand their implicit bias around students? What are the goals and objectives for addressing racism and implicit bias in the school system? Ask for a plan. Push for a plan. Be a part of the plan. We have to say enough is enough. As a community, there's anybody we should be picketing and fighting for, it's our youth. So when we see it, we need to call it, we need to get out there, we need to talk about it. I'm interested in understanding more your opinion on why it's worth it to put the work into pushing back and fighting as opposed to the removal and establishment of other um, independent systems or institutions. It's worth it because of why it's always been worth it. It's about all the kids in the future. It's about all the kids that are left when you take your kid out, right? Like it's about us as a people and us being able to move forward as a people. And education is one of those systems that is an inhibitor or a determinant of success and wealth and all of those things. So why wouldn't we really fight for this to be an equitable, a safe, affirming place for all of our students? Some of what you're mentioning makes me think of the conversations around critical race theory and critical race studies that have been going on for the past couple of months. 
Do you have any thoughts around that conversation that you'd like to share? So critical race theory and how people are talking about it in the space of education is quite interesting because it's now just anything about culture, anything about implicit bias, all of this is now being called critical race theory. So we just need to stop calling it critical race theory at this point. And we just need to talk about a history. We just need to talk about the impact of institutional racism on health, on prosperity, on the job outlook, on education. We just need to talk about what the impact has been. It's being used as a tool to shield us from the real conversation, because the real conversation isn't about critical race theory. The real conversation is about racism and its impact on us as a people. We need to go back and look at some of the studies by Dr. Harrell and Dr. Utsi that talks about the deterioration effects of race-related stress on us and those kinds of things get into the real conversation. So, you know, my my direct opinion is stop engaging, <laughs> like just stop engaging in the debate and really just get to the facts. And there are actual studies that have been done over the years around this work. I mean, some of the earliest studies are like 2003, you know, and they're not like 1970 studies. We're talking about in the last 20 years, there have been studies around this, the impact of it on us, health, mental health, you know. All the issues, they're all there and the impact on children specifically. I'm interested in understanding if some of the anti-Blackness that goes on in the school system, if that changes based on demographics or if it's pretty similar across the board. You know, if a school has mostly white teachers, does it look one way? If it has mostly Black teachers, does it look one way? Or is it so ingrained in the system that it can appear sort of wherever? I think it's both and, (laughs) right? Like, I think that it appears everywhere there are Black children. You know, unless a school was formed specifically to uplift and affirm Black children, and there are some, you know, spaces where that has occurred, then you will see it less. Um, But everyone still has to deal with their bias. They still have to deal with their, their issues around expectations of specific kids and overcome those. And not just the kids, but the families. What does it look like to have these culturally affirming schools or classrooms? How would that look different than what the status quo is? So that would look different by bringing their music, their culture into the lessons. It would include them educating students about Black history, uh, how African-Americans have contributed to society. It would include some of those identity affirming practices that really see our students as bringing assets to the classroom. There's a school here in L.A. It's called Baldwin Hills Elementary. It absolutely was my haven to go visit because students were always doing Afrocentric assignments. So, for example, they had to do not just a Black History Month biography, it wasn't even Black History Month. It was about compare and contrast, which is a higher level critical thinking skill we want all of our students to be able to do. But it was a compare and contrast of a public figure from history to a person of today. Another classroom had fourth graders discussing the issue of police brutality on African-Americans. 
This was before George Floyd. But at the same time, having children actually just deal with some of the things that are happening and talk about them and being able to problem solve, like they were coming up with, you know, how do you think it can change? What do you think they should do about it? Not only affirms that your voice matters, right? Like you have great opinions and your voice matters, but it also allows you to say, we're not pushing it under the rug. It's really happening. And and how are we going to deal with that? And so it seems that it's, you know, it's not that we need, for example, white educators to learn how to teach black kids about black culture, about black things, but more so including aspects of our history and culture in the curriculum affirms what they hopefully are receiving at home or in their community. It makes it so like, okay, if we're getting this in school as well. We know that there's some value to this as opposed to just getting everything from white culture, European culture. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Something real simple is to look at the list of approved books for study in the the school district. How many of them are Black authors? And how many of them deal with constructs that Black folks deal with? And my, my kids are funny because, you know, when they grew up, they grew up as a teacher's kid, of course, but um, they would bring home things and be like really upset about a specific book they were reading because it doesn't really address the real issues. And to have there being even an opposite opinion of that, like having a Black author offer a different perspective so students can see, are there different perspectives to this issue and really have students talking about it? Like if there's a, if there's a hope for our society, it is around how we're able to have these discussions and have students be able to grapple with these issues in a comfortable, safe environment where they can really talk about their opinions and not feel like they're going to get outcasted for it or in trouble for it, but feel safe enough to talk about those things as we move forward. Let's get informed. Let's have a conversation. Thank you for that. So preparing them for the world, I heard you mention that. And then also you've mentioned a couple other things about, you know, including concepts in the curriculum that allow students to use critical thinking skills and and see how to apply these to issues in the community. And that makes me think of an idea that Dr. Amos Wilson shared. He talks about how, you know, education should be intended to teach kids how to solve the issues of their community. And having a white-centered education system, you know, reinforces white kids, like teaches white kids how to continue controlling the world and teaches black kids how to continue being subservient and contributing to their system, but not necessarily addressing the unique challenges that our communities face. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Um, He's absolutely right. Um, Recently in California, there's been a focus on civic um, education and civic readiness and what that looks like in classrooms. And doing it through what we would call performance-based approach and performance-based approaches uh, allow students to authentically address, you know, their learning. So specifically, whatever the standard they are learning, when you're going through a performance-based or project-based approach to that, it allows students to do some current research on it to really delve into like the real issues around a specific topic and then develop an, a, a, you know, a solution for it. And so you'll find some districts are implementing 
this civic project that's a part of graduation that requires students to think about a problem in their community and think about like all the issues around that problem, do some research around it, and then come up with um, a solution they think would be a valid solution for that problem. Allowing students across races and having kids be able to engage in those kinds of activities and processes, not only, of course, contributes to their learning, but when they can see that when they get involved and they get engaged and something actually changes, then they can actually start to feel powerful. They can actually start to feel like, you know what, I do matter which is sometimes the issue, we don't feel like we matter. So those kinds of practices do more than just contribute to the community. They really uplift this, the person involved in that and gives them power and a sense of efficacy that I am efficacious, I can make a change. I wanted to circle back on something that we had discussed before as it relates to actions parents can take when it comes to the different schooling options. I know there's increasing popularity amongst Black parents in terms of taking their kids out of school and homeschooling if they're able to homeschool. There's other Black-centered and Afrocentric private schools popping up. Do you believe that public schools should be fitting and appropriate for everyone? Yeah. So the Matthew effect, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. That is absolutely the same in education. And so I'm always conflicted. I'm all for, you know, really creating these spaces where kids are firm. I also feel like somebody's got to be left for the kids who can't. (laughs) Like somebody's got to do something for that system that still is in place for kids who can't move, whose parents don't have the wherewithal to make the change or move them somewhere else. So it's both. And I'm not saying, you know, that charter schools shouldn't exist, that uh, people should make these amazing spaces for black kids. I'm not saying that at all, but I am saying that there's a certain amount of kids who won't be able to go to those spaces and who may even be removed from those spaces. And we need to be able to have a public school system that we can rely on that is equally as affirming and equally as uplifting for all of those students. And just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, A people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel that's important too. I mean, you're here at the end of a podcast about Black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value the work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people do five or 10 bucks a month, but every little bit makes a difference. I appreciate you supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tarek Alani, Patrick Sanders, Leslie Taylor Grover, William Anderson, Jerea Bradley, 
Brooke Brown, Siobhan Chapman, Tabitha Jacobs, Albany Jones, Brianna Lambeck, Courtney Morgan, Zane Murdoch, Aquia Tay, Tasha Taylor, and Darren Wallace. Producing the podcast, we have Sydney Smith and Sasha Kai Parker, who also edits the show. And Black History Year's executive producer is Julian Walker. And I'm Jay from Push Black. Peace.